If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. And I want to start just by remembering who we are worshiping together. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Just to, to remember who Jesus is, who we are saved by and saved for. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on too tightly, clung to and not letting go. Instead, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because of this, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have been called by Jesus Christ himself, and he has given us a pattern to follow, an example to live by. He was the perfect example of what it means to do the Father's will, to glorify the Father, and to live in obedience to the Father. We follow in his footsteps, longing to be conformed into his image. But I think in the midst of the chaos and the circumstances of life, in the midst of our own sin and our own lack of speedy sanctification, sometimes we forget what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. What it looks like to live as Christ's slave for Christ's glory. Would anybody here admit to ever doing a 1,000-piece puzzle? Anybody? A thousand pieces. A thousand. Okay, what's the, what's the, a thousand-piece puzzle? Anybody do like a 1,500-piece puzzle? Does such a thing exist, or is that just torture and chaos? A a thousand-piece puzzle. What do you do? You open the box, and what do you do? The very first thing you do after dumping all the pieces onto the table and sliding them out, what do you do next? You, you look for the corners. After setting the box back up, putting, putting, we always used to put the bottom of the box into the top of the box so that it would set as a stand so we could see there is the picture that we're trying to find in this mess. <laughs> That's the picture we're trying to find. I remember doing a puzzle came out of a Ziploc bag with no box, going, I can do this. I can do this. And dumping all the pieces out, looking for the corners, and realizing about halfway through, what's it supposed to look like? What what am I even doing? What is the point of this puzzle? I can't see it. I can't identify it. I don't know. Needless to say, uh, I was aggravated to the point where I almost lost my sanctification at that moment threw it all back, make it into firewood. Who cares about that puzzle? What Paul outlines for us this morning in Philippians chapter 1 is really the box, the top of the puzzle box that shows us what we're supposed to look like as believers. And if we don't have the final destination in view, then we will just be aggravated. Discipline without direction is drudgery. And if Paul were to give us the command, just conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, and didn't tell us what that looks like, and then ultimately didn't point out Christ to us and say, this is what it looks like to live in a manner worthy before the Lord, then I think we would just be filled with aggravation because our discipline would just be drudgery without any direction. But this morning, by God's grace, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, we see Paul giving us four points, as it were, to tell us and outline for us what it looks like. How is it supposed to look to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? 
How are we supposed to do that? I want to read our text this morning from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30, and then we'll dive into it and see Paul outlining for us ways that we can live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and I see you or I remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Paul starts off in verse 27 by saying, only, only. That word has a a huge emphasis in the Greek. It's put at the very beginning of the sentence to say, this is the point. Above everything, beyond everything, pay attention to this. And what is he asking us to pay attention to? My Bible translates it, conduct yourselves in a manner. Conduct yourselves in a manner. Five words in the English Only one word in the Greek, one huge pregnant word that needs five English words to translate it. And that's what Paul is saying, only do this. Above everything else, this is what I ask you to do. This is what I plead with you to do. I plead with you to conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only other place that this word is used is, in verb form, is in Acts chapter 23, verse 1. Acts chapter 23, verse 1, reads this. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Those three words, lived my life, is the exact same Greek word that we have here in verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live your life. That's the only other place that this word is used in the New Testament in verb form, but one last place it's used in noun form. Just turn in Philippians over to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. And this will help key in on what Paul is specifically referencing as he brings up this word. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, the only time in the New Testament where this is used In noun form, this word is used in noun form, and it's found here in verse 24, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That word citizenship is that same word in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, only it's in noun form. The reason why it's translated citizenship is inside of that Greek word, it has the word polis or city, like metropolis, city. Conduct yourselves as a good citizen of Jesus Christ is another way that we could translate this sentence in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. Conduct yourselves as good citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not of this world. You are removed from this world. You are not citizens of this earth. You are citizens of heaven. So act like it. Conduct yourselves not as citizens of this world, but conduct yourself as a citizen of heaven. As believers, we are members of a completely different country, a completely different homeland. And at least for now, Paul will give to us certain behavior that is characteristic of true citizens of heaven. What does it look like to act as a true citizen of heaven? Four points. First, We must, if we are going to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must stand firm in one spirit. We must stand firm in one spirit. Paul says, I desire only one thing from you, that you would conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. I want to know that. I want to hear that, whether I come to you or whether I remain absent, whether I stay in jail and suffer in in jail, or whether I get to go to you and I, I am released. Regardless of what happens, I want to make sure that you are living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Or in Ephesians, Paul would write, living in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's what I want to hear that you are doing. And this is how 
the perfect pastoral question is, okay, how do we do that, Paul? How do we live in a manner worthy? How do we do that? And he gives us the answer. Number one, that we are standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm in one spirit. In order to be living in a way that is worthy of the gospel, we need to stand firm together in one spirit. That word standing firm in the Greek means not losing ground. Not losing ground, no matter what adversities might come, no matter what comes at you, you will not move. You are immovable, unshakable. You cannot be shaken. This word is used 11 times in the New Testament. It's used of athletics. It's used of resolute determination to not move. It's used of a soldier standing his ground and not giving an inch. We are supposed to stand firm. Paul says stand firm in one spirit. Elsewhere, Paul tells us that there are many things we are supposed to stand firm in. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13, Paul says that we are supposed to stand firm in the faith. In Galatians 5, verse 1, Paul says we are supposed to stand firm in the truth and the freedom that the justification of God brings, not pulling back the law to ourselves and being slaves again under the bondage of the law. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says that we are supposed to stand firm in the apostles' teaching, in the truth that's been passed down through the apostles. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, we'll get there in a couple months, we are supposed to stand firm in the Lord and not be moved. But here he says, stand firm in one spirit. Stand firm in one spirit with one goal, united with one purpose. Really what we could say is stand firm in the truth, for the truth, because of the truth. Stand firm in what it means to be a believer and the doctrine that makes up what it means to be a a believer. And don't move. Don't be pushed. Don't be pulled. Stay there. Stand firm in one spirit together and don't be moved. Why should we stand firm with one spirit together in the body of the word and the body of the doctrine that's been passed down to us in God's word. John 17, 17 tells us that it is God's word that sanctifies us. So we need to stand firm, not on our own opinions, but on God's word and God's word alone, because it is God's word that sanctifies us. We sing the song, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We know the parable that Jesus gave a man who built his house on the rock, and there's a man who built his house on the sand. Where do we build our house? Are we building on Jesus Christ and on his finished work at the cross, or are we building on our own good deeds, our own righteousness? What are some of the things that we are tempted to build on or to plant our feet on and not be moved? What are other grounds that we turn to when we declare on Christ the solid rock I stand What are the other rocks, quote-unquote, what are the other sinking sands that we tend to try and step foot on when we are struggling in our faith? i just give you a couple. I think first and foremost, we rely on ourselves, on our own religiosity, if you will, on our own good works. We are all natural-born legalists desiring to be able to find approval with God on the basis of our own righteousness. So we have to renounce self-reliance and plead with God to do the work because all we have to offer God is our sin. Sometimes we can stand on the opinions of others. What do they think? What do they feel? And I'll live according to that. What's their desire in this situation? I'll I'll do that instead of what does God say about this situation? What does God desire of me? There are so many other places that we can turn other than the truth So the real question this morning is, how do we live out this command to stand firm in one spirit, in the truth, in Jesus Christ, and are not moved? How do we do that? How do we practically apply standing firm in one spirit? Let me give you a couple points that I think will help in applying this command that Paul gives to stand firm. Number one, we have to know the truth in order to stand in it and firmly rooted in it and not be moved away from it. We have to know the truth. Can't expect to stand on something that we don't even know. Don't hold dear. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23 says this, buy the truth and do not sell once you get it, once you acquire it. Buy the truth and don't sell it. 
purchase the truth, find out where you can acquire the truth, which is right here in God's word. This is where the truth is. Find the truth and then don't let it go. Don't, as it were, buy it and think this is shiny and new and neat and this is great. And then when it's a couple years down the road, it's dilapidated and worn out and I got to go to something new and I'll sell it on eBay. No, buy it, acquire it, and never sell it. Never let it go. Know the truth, acquire it, devote yourself to it. Let the truth of God's word be your hobby. Let it be what you think about, what you mull over in your mind when you aren't forced to think about something else. Secondly, obey the truth. Don't only know it, because knowing by itself is not enough. We must obey it. Luke chapter 8, verse 15, we must hold fast the truth and bear fruit because of our holding fast to the truth. If we just say, oh, I know that, but we don't live according to it, we are doubly condemned. Obey the truth that we know. One pastor says it this way, the reflection of the reality of your faith is shown by how you pursue obedience to what you have learned. Do you do what you know to do? Do you do what you know to do? Thirdly, we can't just know it and obey it ourselves. We must defend the truth from attacks, from error. We must, in the words of Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, we must guard the treasure that has been entrusted to us, guard the sound doctrine, guard the truth, and don't let anybody attack it, steal it, pull it away. Defend the truth from attacks, from error. And those attacks are coming from all sides, and they always will be until Christ comes back and establishes once for all the eternal state where his truth is upheld as truth and is not questioned. Fourthly, not only know it, obey it, defend it, but teach the truth. One of the greatest blessings of my life is being able to teach the Bible because in teaching the Bible, I have to learn what the Bible says and apply what the Bible says to my life so that I'm not hypocritically teaching the word of God. So it is a blessing when I'm able to get here on Sunday mornings and stand before you and preach the truth and teach the truth because I've been able to, in, in amazing ways, be able to dive into God's word, grow, learn, have my affections raised for Christ, teach the word. Second Timothy 2, verse 2, the things that you've heard from me and seen from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these things to others who will do likewise. My prayer for Christ Bible Church is that we would have a, a culture of discipleship, constantly discipling one another, speaking the truth to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, always letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us. Once we have bought the truth or been given the truth, hold it for yourself, guard it, obey it, and then teach it to others. Your relationship to the word of God ultimately tells a lot about where your citizenship is. Do you view this book as guidelines, boundaries, principles, opinions, suggestions? Or do you view this book as the all-sufficient and authoritative word of God that is not to be trifled with, that is not to be second-guessed, but is to be heard, read, obeyed, lived out? Paul says, if you want to live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must stand firm in one spirit. Secondly, you must not only stand firm in one spirit, you must strive with unity for the gospel. You must strive with unity for the gospel. This is when he says, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So we, know, we not only stand firm in the truth of the gospel, but we strive together with unity. He says one mind, literally it's one soul. With one soul, with one person, together as one body, we strive for the faith of the gospel. That's twofold, for the faith of the gospel. We are preaching the gospel to ourselves and growing in the gospel truth ourselves as a body, but we're preaching it to those around us. We're striving together to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with those around us who at this moment are on their way to hell because they don't know it, they don't believe it, they don't accept it, and they haven't bowed the knee to it. We have a job and a duty, and if we are going to shirk off that duty of striving to preach the gospel to a lost and dying world, Paul would tell us this morning, we are not living in a way that's worthy of the gospel that we've received. 
We're not living in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. With one soul, unified with the same disposition, with unity striving for the faith of the gospel. We could talk a lot about unity, but Paul's going to do that in Philippians chapter 2. In fact, these verses that we're covering this morning really are projected onto Philippians chapter 2. Because Paul says, I desire for you, if we could sum up verses 27 through 30, I desire for you to be unified together in what you're striving for. And when you face opposition, that you not wimp out and give up, but that you continue to strive knowing that your suffering is ultimately for God's glory and you suffer with joy. Have unity and suffer with joy. That's the ultimate purpose of verses 27 through 30. Have unity together and suffer with joy. And I think based on those verses as a foundation, Paul then moves in chapter 2 to say, have unity. Let this attitude in Jesus Christ be in you as well. Humble yourself and have unity together and don't be divisive. And also, face suffering the way that Jesus faced suffering. Clinging to the cross, going to the cross, even death on a cross, and is now highly exalted. So Paul begs his readers implores them and commands them that in one mind they must strive together for the faith of the gospel. That word strive there, I love this word. It's, the word in the Greek is soon athleo, and you can hear athleo, athlete. You are supposed to strive as an athlete. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, this word is used, and here's the sentence that it's used. An athlete is not crowned. It's not there, an athlete, but it's in the reference to an athlete. Paul uses this word when he says, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rule. That that word compete is the same word here, strive. So we have, could be translated strive, could be translated compete. This word's also used in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, when he's urging Yodia and Syntyche to be reconciled with each other. He says this, I ask you, true servants, help these women, for they have, and here's our word, labored side by side with me in the gospel together. So this word can be translated strive, can be translated compete, can be translated labor. It has in it an effort of discipline, endurance, running a race with athletic endeavor. The one essential way to walk worthy of the gospel is to fix our eyes on the goal of spreading the faith of the gospel and then applying the effort and discipline and endurance of an athlete to reach that goal. This isn't just, if I wake up and I feel like it, I'm going to go ahead and try and share the gospel. This is with Olympic force. We are living and breathing. We We are taking, I remember watching on ESPN, an Olympian who would take blueberries and would put individual blueberries on a scale and measure out and weigh out individual blueberries because he had a specific regiment of blueberries he could eat. No more, no less. Little tiny blueberries. Oh, no, no, cut that one in half. There we go. This is what I can eat for today. Why? Because the goal is utter perfection. And anything that is going to impede my progress of attaining utter perfection, I need to cut out. Are we that meticulous in what we intake in order to share with others about the gospel. Sometimes when we talk about athletes from the New Testament, I think we project our understanding of athletics onto them, onto the New Testament. Can I just remind us all that the athletes in the time that Paul is writing are not striving to win the Super Bowl, but if they don't, they still you know, make six figures over each game that they win in the playoffs to get the Super Bowl. And it's okay, they'll probably get a couple endorsement deals and it'll be all okay and they'll be able to go back the next year and try again. Athletes back then are in the Colosseum and if they don't win, they die. There is urgency to being an athlete, so much so uh, there was one time that Emperor Trajan um, in the Colosseum held a gladiatorial battle and had 10,000 gladiators and 11,000 animals in one battle in one fight in the Colosseum. That should put a little bit of emphasis on with one mind, with one soul. If we are all in in the Colosseum together and we have animals racing at us and gladiators racing at us and I say, guys, I got this one. 
you just sit over there, stand back, I'll be fine. And I go out and I try to wage war against them. You could call that lunacy. (laughs) You can call that stupid. But if I say, let's link arms, band of brothers together, we all have each other's backs. We will not let one person go. Look to the left, look to the right, constantly be aware of what's happening. That's why Paul says, you need to be together with one mind. You need to be together. Don't be divided on the gospel on this issue because if you are, you can't strive together and you will be lost. You will be killed as you are pursuing being a good athlete for the Lord. You need to strive for the gospel. In these kind of battles, our teammates are vital. So let's strive together. And let's strive together for what exactly? Specifically, Paul says, for the faith of the gospel. This is just everything that makes us who we are. Every single thing that makes us who we are in Christ. It's the good news of Jesus. It's the doctrine of Jesus. It's the the word of God together. It's the basis of what we, we believe. What is at stake is more than just our lives. It is what we believe and hold dear. And if we aren't doing this, if we aren't radically embracing the fact that we are called as ambassadors to go out and to plead with a lost and dying world. We're not, we're not above begging people to come to Christ. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We need to be begging people, imploring them to come to Christ. If we aren't doing what we can to get others to embrace the gospel, then not only are we living in sin but we are definitely living in a way that is unworthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we battle together for the gospel, practically? How do we do this? Just a couple ways to do this. Invite your neighbors to dinner. Invite your neighbors to dinner for the purpose of sharing the gospel. I was um, having dinner with a, a couple men a couple nights ago, and one said, I don't think I've ever spoken about Jesus Christ at my job, at my work, I don't even think they know that I am a Christian, and there is no way that I would ever tell my neighbors that. (laughs) I thought, well, why not? What do you have to lose? (laughs) What are they going to do to you? Say, I'm a believer. I love Jesus, and I'd love to have you over sometime to talk about him. What's the harm in that? The worst they can do is kill you, and then death is gained. So go for it. Do we invite neighbors to dinner? Do we talk in, in our communities for the purpose of sharing the gospel? Go outside and work on your car, even if you don't know what you're doing, like me. You know, just pop the hood, look around, hope it does something, so that you can see your neighbors and say, hi, neighbor Fred, hi, neighbor Bob, how are you doing today? That's why we give these. We have these to be able to pass out. If you, if you struggle with getting into the gospel, say, this has the gospel on it, and if you have questions about it, let's talk. Come on over for dinner. Share Christmas carols. Go caroling. Maybe if you don't have a good voice, that's your one excuse. Uh, Don't go caroling, because that might not work out too well. Invite people. Reach out. Invite them to church. Get them under sound Christian truth. Say, you know what? Maybe I don't know all the answers to the questions you're asking, but come because other believers might. So please, just come sit under the truth. Talk to others about the Lord. Do so just as if you were here. Um, Don't use Christianese here and then go outside of these walls and use other language to talk about how excited you are about Jesus Christ. And when something good happens in the church, we say, praise the Lord. Give God glory for that. That's amazing. Praise God. And then when something good happens outside the church, we say, oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's neat. No, use the same language that you would use here. Let others know that you are a believer and share the gospel. We, we rightly criticize seeker-sensitive churches for their flawed theology and pragmatic approaches to evangelism. We rightly do that. But we need to be seekers, these seekers, that go after lost souls, sensitive to the fact that those souls are going to hell right now. We need to be doing that job. So we exist as a church not just to come here and savor the glory of God here by ourselves. We exist as a church to go out and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, that it could be said of Christ's Bible church what is said of the, Jew, the Jewish believers in Acts chapter 5, verse 27, when the Jewish leaders say, we strictly charge you not to teach the, the gospel in the name of Christ, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. How amazing would it be if somebody one day said, 
Christ Bible Church filled the Northridge community, filled the San Fernando with the teaching of the gospel. If if the San Fernando Valley were blanketed with the gospel and people could say, it's because of that church. And what better time to think about evangelism than right now when you can go into a store at the mall and you hear, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. What's this king about? He saves us from our sin. He saves us from death. Just say, hey, do you celebrate Christmas? Do you know what they're singing about? Do you, do you know who Jesus is? Can I tell you, he's not a baby anymore. He didn't stay in a manger. He lived the perfect life, died the death that we deserve to give us his righteousness and take upon himself the wrath of God. We need to stand firm in one spirit. We need to strive with unity for the gospel. We need to strive with unity for the gospel in such a way that we are emphatically preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us. And third, if we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to steadfastly endure opposition. Steadfastly endure opposition. This is in verse 28. As we are striving together for the faith of the gospel, we should be in no way alarmed by our opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. This word alarmed, in no way alarmed, only used here in the entire New Testament, but in extra biblical literature, we see this word being used primarily with regard to a a horse that's spooked by something around him and throws his rider off. He's alarmed and he, he spooks really quickly and jumps up. We don't do that. When opposition comes, when persecution comes, when suffering comes, we're not spooked. We don't instantly rise up and throw off our rider, so to speak. We are not spooked. The opponents of the Philippian church are trying to spook them, quote unquote. They're trying to alarm them, whether it's by denying them business, if they are a Christian business owner, whether it's by not hiring people into their business because they are believers and they don't want to hire, they are non-believers and they don't want to hire believers, whether it's evicting them from their homes and not letting them back, whether it's actual imprisonment or uh, persecution in the form of death, whatever it is, opposition is being faced by the Philippian church. And Paul says, you must be in no way alarmed by your opponents. Why? Because You're striving together for the faith and not being alarmed when your opponents try to make you suffer is a sign of destruction for them, and it's a sign of salvation for you. It's a sign. It's one sign producing two effects. The word sign there in the Greek means proof or or evidence. It proves that something is taking place. We could translate it this way, which is, with reference to them, a sure sign of perdition and destruction. This is sure. You're striving together for the faith and not being alarmed when your opponents hate you and revile you and attack you is a sign of their destruction. It's a sign of their destruction. Why? Because they are oppressing the good news of Jesus Christ. They're not going to hear, obey, receive, bow the knee. They are uh, incurring further condemnation, and if they do not bow the knee, they will ultimately receive further destruction and final judgment in hell forever. But for you, for the believer in the church in Philippi, not being alarmed, it's a sign of salvation. Knowing that this is what Jesus said would happen. If they hated me, then they're going to hate you who follow me. So don't be surprised when the suffering comes. Don't be surprised when the persecution comes. It's a sign of destruction for them that will compel you to preach the gospel more to them because you know that they hate Jesus Christ and you want them to love him. And it's a sign of salvation for you as you follow Jesus Christ and believe that when he said suffering will come, persecution will come, you know it's going to come. It's not a surprise. It's not a shock. One commentator says it this way, it is God who sends the persecutions that they must undergo, the solid resistance with which they must confront them, and the assurance of salvation which follows. God sends them all, the persecution, the solid resistance, and the assurance of salvation. God sends it all. In no, in no way alarmed by your opponents. It's a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that, that word that is very clearly not attached to sign of destruction or sign of salvation, but it's attached to not being alarmed because you are striving for the faith of the gospel. Not being alarmed. It's from God. The peace that God gives you to stay steadfast in the midst of opposition is from 
God. Matthew 5, verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when people say all kinds of evil against you and revile you. Blessed are you. Happy are you. Filled with joy are you. Why? Because in the same way they persecuted the prophets, in the same way they persecuted the prophets, and your reward in heaven is great. Luke, 10, Luke 6, verse 22 when men hate you, turn against you, ostracize you, you are blessed. You are blessed. Paul tells us if we're to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to stand firm in one spirit. We need to strive with unity for the gospel. We need to steadfastly endure opposition, knowing it's going to come, but not being surprised by it. And we need to suffer with joy. Fourthly and finally, we need to suffer with joy. This is the last one, and this is the hardest one. Paul says, For to you, verse 29, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. When we're in the midst of suffering, or when you know somebody who is in the midst of suffering, common questions are, why would God allow this? Why doesn't God do something? Is God in control? Does God care? Have you all heard those questions before? This verse is strikingly difficult to wrap your mind around. Because if somebody were to ask, why would God allow this? Probably God didn't allow this. God's, God just kind of let this happen and, and struggled and wanted it to come. No, this verse says that God doesn't allow things. It says that he gives the suffering. That word there, for to you it has been granted, comes from the Greek word charis, charis, that is grace. It's been gifted to you as a gift. What a perfect time to think about gifts. It's as if God is wrapping up a Christmas present, giving it to you, and as you untie it and unwrap it, it is suffering. It is trials. It's difficult, weighty, oppression. It's painful. And yet, Paul tells us that it's a gift from God. Your suffering is a gift from God. So why would God allow this? No, no, no. This verse doesn't say God allows this. This verse says that God purposes, plans, and gifts suffering. Why isn't he doing something about my suffering? No, no, no. This verse doesn't say he's not doing anything. This verse says he is doing. He's absolutely active in handing you the suffering. Is this out of his control? No, he's ultimately in control. Is he not caring? No, he's caring by giving you the greatest gift possible. This is a very challenging doctrine and theology to see this, the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering, but I think John Piper puts it very well. The biblical categories of God's sovereignty lie like landmines in the pages of the Bible, and here's one of those landmines. God gifts suffering. And these landmines are just waiting for someone to seriously open the book. These landmines do not kill, but they do explode trivial notions of the Almighty God. Let's step on this landmine of God's sovereignty together and let trivial notions of the Almighty God be exploded in our minds. God gifts suffering. How do we share this with people going through suffering? How do we share this with our own heart? Randy Alcorn, I think, is very helpful here. He says this, If you have ever been in a situation of suffering, the issue isn't theoretical, philosophical, or theological. It is deeply personal when you go through suffering. Logical arguments won't satisfy you. In fact, they probably will offend you. You need help with the emotional problems of evil and suffering, not merely the logical problems. So by all means, speak with a friend and perhaps a pastor or a counselor in the midst of suffering. But in the process, don't seek comfort by ignoring truth. When you try to soothe your feelings without bothering to think deeply about ideas, you are asking to be manipulated. Quick fix feelings won't sustain you over the long haul. On the other hand, deeply rooted beliefs, specifically a worldview that is grounded in Scripture, will allow you to persevere and hold on to a faith built on the solid rock of God's truth. So even in the midst of opposition, persecution, suffering, we need to cling to the truth. That's why we strive together. We stand firm in the truth in one spirit. We strive together for the faith of the gospel. We are not alarmed by our opponents. And then, and only then, when we're standing firm in the truth, can we realize in the midst of suffering, we can rejoice. It is given to us by God as a gift. Why should we rejoice? 
Is it really a gift? I know Paul says that, but how is it a gift? Why should we rejoice in the midst of sufferings? Well, a couple weeks ago, we looked at Paul in the midst of suffering, giving us four reasons why we should rejoice in our suffering, that suffering is a means of furthering the gospel, suffering is a means of sharing the gospel with non-believers, suffering is a means of encouraging fellow believers, and suffering is a means of rejoicing in Christ above all things. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. But just in these short verses this morning, I want to give you three reasons why we should be glad in our suffering, why we should rejoice in the midst of suffering. Number one, because of what our suffering proves, the, the proof, remember the sign of destruction for them and a sign of salvation for us, the suffering and the opposition that we are going through and the trials that we are going through is proving that God loves us, that we are His, that we are destined for salvation. In fact, if we are not going through suffering and not being disciplined by God, Hebrews 12 would say that you might not be a child of God because all of God's kids are getting it. Secondly, we should rejoice in our suffering not only because of what it proves, but because of who it is for. That's why Paul says it is for Christ's sake. You've been gifted suffering for Christ's sake, for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. You've been gifted the, the gift of suffering um, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. You've been gifted belief and you've been gifted suffering. You've been gifted both of these things. And it's all for the sake of Jesus Christ. It's all for the sake of the renown and fame of Jesus Christ. So know in the middle of suffering, know without a shadow of a doubt that God is glorified as you rejoice in the fact that he is sovereign in control with good purposes and good intentions. You remember when we ask uh, the, the kids in Matthew 7 that ask um, in Jesus' parable, they ask for a gift, they ask for bread. Fathers are not going to give a stone or a snake. They're going to give good gifts. And so too your heavenly Father who is not evil. You fathers are evil, but your heavenly Father who is not evil will give you only good gifts. This is a good gift. And one of the reasons why it's a good gift is it glorifies God through us in ways that not having the gift of suffering would not. Thirdly, and finally, it's because of whom it is with. We should rejoice in our suffering because of whom our suffering is with. Paul says, it's the same thing I'm going through, verse 30, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Or Luke chapter 6, verse 23, it's the same thing that they did the prophets. It's the same thing they did to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Suffering as a gift is probably one of, if not the hardest, doctrine and theology in the pages of all of Scripture. I think a poem um, that was written called The Thorn really helps us see suffering as a gift. It, it goes like this. I stood a, a mendicant, that's just a beggar. I stood a mendicant of God before his royal throne and begged him for one priceless gift which I could call my own. I took the gift out of his hand, but as I would depart, I cried, but Lord... This is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange and hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as, young, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. Brothers and sisters, do you want to see more of Jesus Christ? One of the best ways to see more of him is in the midst of suffering, when he uses the suffering to pull back the veil that hides his face. What suffering are you going through right now? Do you see it as a gift from God? If you don't, please know that we all in no way condemn you because we've all been there before. When we're saying on our beds at night, God, I don't care if it is a gift. I want it to be gone. I don't like it. It hurts. Get it away. I don't care what your purposes are. I want to be done. We've all been there before. And Paul reminds us it's a gift and it's a good gift and it's a gift that will 
shine the glory of God into your circumstances in ways that not having suffering would. So if you are struggling in the midst of suffering to see it as a gift, please know we do not by any way, any means, for any reason condemn you. But can I just commend to you, pray. The only way to be able to see suffering as a gift is by God opening your eyes to see it. Ask the Lord, God, I know that this suffering hurts. I know it's difficult and I want to see it as a gift and I know I'm not right now. Please open my eyes to see it as a gift. And then do the very difficult task that Paul did a couple weeks ago of seeing in the midst of your circumstances that are terrible, that are terrifying, that are depressing and full of pain, oh, there's good coming out of it. I'm chained in a Roman garden. I'm not able to preach the gospel to everybody around me, but I can do it to him. I can't come visit you in the church, but I can share the gospel. And if you are here this morning and you see your suffering as a gift, please do not boast in the fact that you see your suffering as a gift. Look at me, I'm doing good. See it as an evidence of grace that God would grant you the ability to see by faith that the pain and the trial are a gift from God to you for your good and for his glory. Are we living like this? Do we stand firm together? Do we stand firm in one spirit? Do we strive with one mind in unity for the faith of the gospel? Do we steadfastly endure opposition and are fine defending the faith and being ridiculed for it? And do we see suffering as a gift and suffer because it's a gift with joy? We can say this, if we are not, then we are not living in the manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We can say that. How do we get there? Just really, really quickly, I, I want to I remind us the proper order here. Paul doesn't start by saying, you need to do these things. You need to do these things, and if you do these things, you'll find favor with Jesus. Paul starts, and the order here is so crucial. He starts by saying, you need, first and foremost, to accept the gospel and then conduct yourselves in light of the gospel. Don't try to earn the gospel. Don't try to work to earn God's favor. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel that you've already received, that Jesus has already graciously bestowed to you. There's a danger in trying to say, I'm going to live in such a way that I earn the grace that God has given to me that I pay off the debt that God has paid for me. I couldn't pay it when he died on the cross, but now I can live in such a way with obedience and repentance that I pay him off and the debt is done. Don't try to earn the favor of Jesus Christ through living in a way that is worthy of him because, brothers and sisters, we will never earn his favor by living in a manner worthy of the gospel. We live worthy of the gospel because we've already been given 100% of the favor of Jesus Christ and can do nothing to earn it or detract from it. Theology jumps up in the weirdest, strangest of places. I was watching Toy Story with Chelsea. You seen the movie Toy Story? There's an amazing scene in Toy Story. Again, theology, I would never have said Toy Story was an amazing theological reference, but it is. It's an amazing scene that popped up. And I want to end with this. Buzz Lightyear, the crazy cool space toy, has finally found out throughout the whole movie he thinks he's the best you know, toy, God's gift to humanity. And he finally found out he's just a toy and not a space ranger. And he has this dialogue with his once enemy, now friend, Woody, the little sheriff cowboy. And he says, as he's in the enemy's house, instead of Andy's house, his original owner. He says this, Buzz says, Andy's house, Sid's house, what's the difference? Woody says, oh, Buzz, you've had a big fall. You must not be thinking clearly. Buzz says, no, Woody, for the first time in my life, I'm thinking clearly. He looks at himself, says, you were right all along. I'm not a space ranger, I'm just a toy. I'm a stupid little insignificant toy. 
what he says. Whoa, whoa, hey, wait a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a space ranger. Yeah, right, says, says Buzz. Woody says, no, it is. Look over in that house. There's a kid who thinks you are the greatest, and it's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You are his toy. And then here's where the theology's just jumped out of the screen. Buzz says, but why would Andy want me? Woody says, why would Andy want you? Look at you. You're a Buzz Lightyear. Any other toy would give up his moving parts just to be you. You've got wings. You glow in the dark. You talk. Your helmet does that whoosh thing. You're a cool toy. Woody pauses and looks at himself. As a matter of fact, you're too cool. I mean, what chance does a toy like me have against a Buzz Lightyear action figure? All I can do is, and he pulls his own string, and you hear the, the voice, there's a snake in my boot. And he bows his head, and he says this, why would Andy ever want to play with me when he's got you? And as I'm sitting there, and Chelsea doesn't know what's happening, and I'm starting to tear up, realizing that is the gospel only completely flipped around and seen incorrectly. And I think this is what the world thinks. Oh, God would want me because I'm cool and I've got these awesome parts that talk and my helmet does the whoosh thing. Why wouldn't God want me? The reality is if you look in yourself to see something that God would want, you're looking in the wrong place because there's nothing we can do on our own that would make God say, I want you on my team. You're awesome, and I'd be stupid not to take you on my team. No, God did not choose me because I'm awesome. God chose me because he's awesome. And by his grace, looked at me, a depraved, worthless sinner, and said, I will bestow my love on you at the price of my son. Now, now that you have the favor of my son, would you walk in a manner worthy? Oh, you're never going to outpay that debt. You're never going to remove it. You will always be indebted to Jesus Christ. But you have the favor of Jesus. And nothing you do or don't do will ever detract from that. So now, let the grace of God motivate you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for your love and grace that compels us to live in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. We can never live in such a way that we can repay you for what you've done. We can never do that. So we live knowing that forever we will be indebted to you, forever. And when eternity comes, we will sing for billions of years in heaven, worthy is the lamb who was slain in my place. God, I pray now as we think about living in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, that we would do the task of rightly seeing the indicative of who we are in Christ apart from our works, and then let the imperatives come second to that. God, help us to never switch the order and seek to earn your favor by what we can do. May we rest now, even as we sing of what we desire to do, in the work that we desire to do, may we sing in a way that would honor you by not holding these works that we desire to do because we want to earn your favor, but doing these works because you've already bestowed upon us the favor of the Most High God, in whose name we pray. Amen.